Some of you will know that Pete and myself have spent nearly three weeks in Kenya and I have a, a greeting from you from one of our favourite people out there. She's called Mama Director Jane and she's a fabulous woman and this is what she wants me to say to you. Dear sisters and brothers at Christ Church, Birmingham, UK, receive greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. I am greatly honoured and humbled and wish to appreciate all of you for the great love that you have for us. On behalf of the women, I wish to appreciate and acknowledge all those who contributed towards building of our kindergarten classrooms, playing and learning materials. Thank you for those who supported by paying our theological training fees, the books and sessions we have had together with Mr. Peter and Bobby. Thanks for the partnership. Thanks for the laptops we have received. Well, they haven't yet, but they will do soon. They're currently in Nairobi having things done to them, and in uh, the village they're preparing a room to be able to put them in safely. Thank you for enabling Mr. Peter and Bobby, I think I should be Mr. Peter and Mrs. Bobby, to travel and come down to us. We have had great moments with them, and we give all the glory to God. It is our prayer that you bring more volunteers to come from there. Thanks for all the support through Navigators. May the Lord bless you abundantly. We enjoyed having them with us. We are praying that they come again, God willing. We wish them journey's mercies as they travel back to the UK, and we wish them well. Please continue praying for us. The Women's Wing is full of widows. Remember us in prayers and think about us. They are so thrilled that we have this partnership, and it isn't just about us and and those who have been, but they recognise that actually our families, our church families are, are... joined together in this partnership so even if you've never been thank you for your support for them this morning's reading is second book of samuel chapter 12 verses 1 to 13 the lord sent nathan to david when he came to him he said there were two men in a certain town one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes... I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret but I will do this thing in broad daylight in all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for that dramatic rendering. (laughs) You are the man. Good morning, everyone. Shall we pray? Lord, what we know not but should know, please teach us. What we have not but need, please give us. And what we are not but should be, in your mercy, please make us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As it's now five past eleven, I will um, cut all the preamble. No jokes, we're going to get on with it. (laughs) Mouthpiece for truth and justice. This was the mission of Jesus, of course, who was full of grace and truth. It was marked, his mission, by justice and mercy. You remember, recorded in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes back to his hometown, and he's well known by now, And he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, as usual, and he's asked to read the lesson. And he does it very dramatically. (laughs) For he's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and of course it wasn't with chapters in it and so on, so he had to scroll through until he found the place he wanted, where we read this. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll up and sits down and they're all looking at him. And then he says, today, that prophecy, written 750 years ago, is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. It was a mission of grace, mercy, and justice. And that's what he did. He went about performing practical acts of justice and mercy. He fed the hungry. He touched the leper. I, I can't begin to imagine what the leper must have felt. He must have been, it must have been wonderful that he was free of his leprosy, but, but actually unclean, unclean to be touched by the Savior. Wow. Jesus needn't have done that. He could have just told him, you'd be healed. He restored the prostitute. He absolved the sinners. He raised the dead son of a poor lone widow. He overthrew the tables and whipped the rip-off merchants out of the temple. He told the rich man that salvation was found in selling and giving all he had and giving it to the poor. And Jesus warned us that the criteria on judgment day for inclusion in his eternal kingdom included whether we had clothed the naked, fed the hungry, and visited the prisoner. As John Stott once wrote, Jesus is no social reformer. He does not address himself to the political structures, but he is deeply concerned with the physical as well as the spiritual needs of people. He cries for the people of Israel and Palestine today. Peter, in Acts chapter 10, summarizes Jesus' ministry with this beautiful phrase, he went about doing good. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say about somebody? We had a marvelous memorial service or Thanksgiving service here earlier in the week for Phoebe Coleman. And uh, some lovely things were said about her. It was, a, it was a marvelous service, actually, I have to say. Now, when your turn comes, or mine, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone would be able to stand here and say, you know, he, John, Susan, Michael, R Richard, whoever you are, he went about doing good. Isn't that wonderful? That's our Jesus. So it was the mission of Jesus. Truth and justice. But it, the early church was noted for it too. Let me just read you some familiar words from the very beginning of the life of the church in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. Because from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed to anyone who was in need. And you'll know in Acts chapter 6 where some of the widows are being left out that they, they send a group to make sure that all of them are being properly fed. It was part of the DNA of the early church. 
And so it's been down the years. You see, justice is God's design plan. Now, I've got some press-ganged volunteers in the congregation this morning who've all got a verse to read. And this uh, is a snapshot of what God says about justice and what he feels about it. So let's start with Isaiah 28:17, please. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And further on in Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I love justice. Back in, in the wilderness wanderings, he appoints judges, and this is what he tells the judges recorded in Deuteronomy 16, verse 20. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So when all these people are coming in front of you, justice is the only thing that you must stick to. And Amos 5.24, we know this one quite well, I think. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Yes, let justice roll on like a river. And finally, Matthew records some prophetic words, again from Isaiah, that were fulfilled in Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. Till he has brought justice through to victory. Thank you to my press gang volunteers. I wonder what God thinks of a world for which justice is so important to him. A world that spends 31 billion pounds on ice cream every year, when a third of that would install sanitation and clean water for the whole world. How on earth do you think God feels about that? Or of a world that spends £18 billion on facial cosmetics. But a third of that would give the whole world a basic education. It's immoral, isn't it? But even worse than that, a world that spends $2.4 trillion on industries that create and manage violence, otherwise known as defence spending... Whereas £150 billion would eradicate world poverty today. Now, how do you think the God of justice feels about that? There is work to be done, much to be done, isn't there, brothers and sisters? And we've all got a part to play. And we're supposed to be talking to our front line, so I must stop the big picture and focus down on our own situation. Because it's like the elephant, you know, if we all chip away a bit... It makes a difference, doesn't it? So we move to the world of work. Now, please let me say, before you think it, a clergyman is the last person in the world to talk about work. For as everybody knows, he hasn't had a decent day's work in his life. As the old saying goes, he is six days invisible and one day incomprehensible. That aside... I'm reminded of a clergyman called John who was on a train in South Wales when a rather drunk communist miner entered his compartment. 
When he discovered that John was a vicar, he treated him to a lecture on work. It's time you became productive. You're a parasite on the body politic. He knew John was in employment, but he didn't think it was real work. Now, that means that it's important to us to point out that not all work is paid employment. Many people work in the home or contribute to voluntary work. I was in the Age UK charity shop in Northfield two or three weeks ago, taking a couple of bags of my late mother's clothes. And I was welcomed and invited to go right through to the back to the sorting department. And there were two people who'd been at it all day with bags and bags and bags of stuff, sorting laboriously, faithfully through each one. And Age UK couldn't do without them. But the best volunteers, volunteers do an absolutely vital job, don't they? Many take care of children and dependents, and such work can be arduous but goes unnoticed so often. Many who are retired work just as hard in voluntary work as they did in paid employment. That aside then, whichever kind of work, it invariably has at its heart the relationships with other people you work with. And justice in the workplace demands that all parties receive their due, not just the one we might feel more sympathetic towards, or on the other hand, not just the one in the strongest position. I'd like to just posit a couple of scenarios that you and your groups might like to talk about this week. What about the call centre operator? having to deal with a persistently poor payer who's now about to have his phone or his electricity cut off. You're that person. Now, loving kindness may let the debtor off the hook, but at the same time, it betrays the trust placed in me as the operator by the company who've supplied and are now out of pocket. Not quite as simple and straightforward as it might appear, is it? Bringing justice demands that the legitimate requirements of all sides are recognised. Justice for everyone. Maybe some leniency is appropriate, particularly in allowing extra time to play. What should the call operator do, bearing in mind he doesn't really want to be fired? A question for the groups. Another scenario. How is the Christian manager to deal with a member of staff who maybe, due to personal problems, is underperforming? We may feel that our approach as the Christian manager should be one of compassion, citing Jesus' instruction to forgive 70 times 7 and provide all means necessary to help the individual. But we also need to recognize that pursuing this path also has a cost associated with it. First of all, for the team who have to work extra hard to cover for him, And second, for the company as it continues to pay for an underperforming staff member. On the other hand, no one would consider it just for a company to get rid of its staff at the first sign of a problem. That's the situation. Discuss. Much wisdom's needed, isn't it? We need wisdom to know what to say, how to say it, and when to say it.
And of course, we must be known as people of integrity who tell the truth. Mouthpiece for truth and justice. Now, truth, of course, as we well know, is in very short supply (laughs) around us, isn't it? Because so many people have actually thrown out objective truth in favor of what's true is what's true for me. May may I dare I name that certain gentleman Donald Trump? (laughs) Now, he pervades this stuff that the other side are on a witch hunt, and because they don't want him to get a second term and so on, we pray he doesn't. Um, and, and so that's the line he's taking. And of course, all his de- devotees believe that it's the truth that there is a witch hunt. And if Donald Trump believes it's true, it must be true, mustn't it? But you see, the trouble is, I'd love to, be, I'd love to have a little look inside Donald Trump's head, you know. And for all of us that sometimes, you know, because sometimes if we, if we say things often enough, we come to believe that they're true. But of course they're only true for me. But of course that also has an effect on all the, all the other people who actually believe that what I say is true. Let me be personal for a moment. I have always had a big struggle with exaggeration. And I still do it. And I exaggerate in order to impress. I still do it. Earlier in the week, I was having a a meal with uh, very dear friends. We hadn't seen each other for ages. And we had a meal together. We were telling each other how we were getting on, what we'd been doing, and so on. And I was telling them that I spent quite a lot of my time in the last six months sorting out my late mother's house and uh, sorting out her affairs. And I'd been up to the house, and I'd collected 32 boxes of papers with all her stuff, you know, brought them home to sort them. Well, actually, that's an exaggeration. In other words, it is a lie, because I didn't bring 32 home. I brought 24 home. It's still quite a lot. (laughs) So why did I do that? I did it in order to impress. Now, the problem with that is, A, it's a lie, but B, if I go on telling that tale often enough... I will at one time, at some stage, begin to believe that it's true. I brought home 32 boxes. See how sinister it is and how how important it is that we tell the truth to ourselves first so that we can tell the truth to others. That's the thing about gossip, isn't it? So often, gossip isn't the truth. You know the game we've all played, Chinese Whispers, where you have a row of people and you, you set a person off with a story at one end and they're supposed to pass it on down the line and see <laughs> whether it resembles at all, <laughs> when you get to the end, what was in the, at the beginning. It's quite a fun game, but it's salutary, isn't it? Because so often that's exactly what happens. It bears no relation to what was, what was said at the very beginning. My uh, dear late wife, Helen... She hated gossip with a passion. She called it the cancer in the body of Christ. And she would not have it. I tell you, and I mean this quite sincerely, I have never heard, my dear Helen, gossip about anybody. And the effect that that had, you see, is you wouldn't have it in the house. So I didn't gossip. And our girls didn't gossip. 
because of the example that was being set by our, our lovely Helen. Now, she left us 15 years ago. Whether the, th- the two girls and I are as punctilious about it now as we would have been then, well, only others can judge. The thing about gossip, though, you see, and it can happen at work, it can happen anywhere, can't it, in your front line, do we go along with it or do we challenge it? Over to you. So often it's not what we say, but how you say it that really counts. You probably know the verse in Proverbs 15. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word causes anger. A soft answer. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And that brings me, and you think I'd forgotten about it, hadn't you? That brings me to John's dramatic reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12. King David had, uh, all his troops were out at war and he was enjoying himself in the sunshine and he saw this very pretty girl, Bathsheba, and he wanted her. And so he took her and he got her pregnant. And then he thought, oh dear, what am I going to do now? So he thought, right, well, I'd better get Uriah home from the battlefield and make sure they have sex together and then it'll be all right because nobody will know. The trouble was Uriah didn't play ball. He came home, but he didn't go into his wife. And when the king asked him why, he said, well, I can't do it. Everybody else is out. All the other soldiers, you've called me in, but all all my mates, my colleagues, are out in tents in the fields. So how can I go into my wife? He tried to get him drunk, but that didn't do it either. So what did he do? He said to his henchman, Joab, will you, will you make sure that when battle is rejoined, Uriah is in the front line? And of course, Uriah is killed. And after a suitable period of mourning, it says, in, in, in understatement in 2 Samuel 12, he takes Bathsheba and, and the child is born. Now God who is a God of justice, is really angry about this. So what does he do? He sends his prophet, Nathan, to confront him. Now the question is, what does Nathan say, and how does he do it? Because if he confronts him, goes right, you know, full on through the front door, well, he might follow Uriah. He's not terribly keen on that. So he thinks, I've got to find a way. Lord, please help me. I've got to find a way by getting in by the side entrance so that actually I'm tackling it, but actually it catches David off his guard. He doesn't realize I'm getting at him. It's really clever, isn't it? And, and God give us the grace to... So he tells him the story, you know, about um, the, the rich man who has all these sheep and... Uh, the poor man who just has one ewe lamb that he loves and cherishes and so on, and the visitor comes and he kills the, the, the one and won't kill, kill his own, you see. He should die, says David. You're the man, as John dramatically told us. You're the man. God grant that to us the wisdom to know how to say things and when to say things and what to say. And that leads me, as I finish to plea for us to pray because we're in a battle over this thing aren't we we're in a battle in a world that doesn't believe in truth anymore it doesn't even know what it is but we're not in a battle against the Donald Trumps and the Vladimir Putins and all the rest and all the people that we know constantly lie to us we're not in a battle against them 
We're in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The triumvirate of evil that are behind all this. We're in a battle with the world that wants to squeeze us into its mold and say, it doesn't really matter if you exaggerate. It doesn't really matter if you tell a few fibs now and then, does it? Against the world, the flesh, which says to us, oh, don't go and confront A, B, and C at work because actually, you know, you don't like, we we don't like confrontation, do we? Anything for, for, for a comfortable life. Or the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And of course, the big battle with the devil over this one is that the devil is what Jesus calls the father of lies. Absolutely. So where is it all coming from? Why have we lost truth in the public sphere and in, indeed in the world outside? Because the devil has got a grip on our culture. We've talked about molding the culture and so on. And boys, do we need to pray, don't we? I'd love us to spend more time praying into that holier. And God give us, grant us the wisdom to know what to say, when to say it, and how to put it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have of being used by you in our daily situations. We lift before you the places we'll be this week and the people we'll be with and we pray for your boldness and wisdom to go about doing good and to speak out when the need arises. May we love justice and bring it about where we can. May we speak and live truthfully. Please equip us with your spirit and help us to tune into you that we may serve you well. Lord, our hearts ache as we read and watch the news. How much more must yours? All around the world, wars, injustice, hatred and suffering. We cry out to you for peace and reconciliation. We pray for an end to violence and cruelty. We pray for your mercy on our broken world. We pray for those who are suffering and thank you for those who bring aid and comfort where they can. We pray for the UK. We pray for all who are struggling in the cost of living crisis and pray that again, help can be given. We pray for our government and all in power to be working together for justice with compassion. We pray that funding would be directed to where it's needed. We lift to you the struggles in the health service, education, social services and public services. We thank you so much for all who work so hard for the good of others and ask you to sustain them. We thank you for our church family here in Selly Park. Thank you for the work that we've been entrusted to do here. We pray especially for the warm welcome taking place this week and restarting soon, twice weekly, for the winter. We pray for positive relationships to be built up in this, and for support to be given where needed. Thank you for the many people who come into this building each week, and for the staff and volunteers working with them. 
we pray that your love and kindness will be found here and that people would be drawn into relationship with you. We pray for those known to us in need of our prayers at the moment, for those who are ill, bereaved, lonely or suffering in some way. In a moment of quiet, we lift them to you. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for your peace, strength, healing and wholeness. And this morning as we continue in our worship, we thank you that you are amongst us and pray that you would continue to meet with each of us in whichever way we need, that you would build us up and equip us to continue to serve you this week wherever you have placed us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.